It's really nice to be here. Um, just before I get into what I was talking about, it sounds like Byron wants me to talk a bit about some stuff that's been happening in Christchurch. So I'm involved um, quite a lot in the city-wide kind of response to the earthquakes. And so, um, just mentioned uh, last week we had a meeting all morning. We had 230 church leaders around the city gathered for the whole morning and um, presented with the last two years, a group has mapped the whole city in terms of where's every church in the city, what are they doing, where are they put together. We had the, the government guy, uh, Roger Sutton, who's head of the earthquake rebuild, come and speak. Uh, and then we, we've divided the city into 16 areas and we got everyone in all of those areas to sit down and strategize how we're going to reach these areas. And so it's just extraordinary, um, unprecedented really, uh, thinking about, you know, it's about reaching the city. So that's what people are thinking. So uh, a couple of Baptist churches, the biggest Baptist church in uh, the city, Sprayton Baptist, uh, and another Baptist church looked at this area where the government is putting 10,000 new sections in, so roughly 30,000 new people, and they said, why don't we combine and relocate and go in there? So they did that. Um, so that's already happening. There's another... Then over in the east part of the city is quite a difficult area, and like there's an independent uh, Brethren church over there uh, that's struggling a bit, and so a big Presbyterian church on the other side of the city said, you really need an administrator. We'll, we'll give you $10,000 to employ someone a day a week for the next year because we're thinking city and we need you to be strong. So there's just lots of stuff like that happening that go, it's about reaching the city, you know, we need... We need uh, uh, Pastor Warren's into Tim Keller, the guy from New York. He says, you know, you need four or five strong just movements of churches. So, yeah, we need the Anglicans going strong and the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals and the Baptists. We all got to be going strong if we're going to reach the city. Um, so we had the Catholic bishop there, the Anglican bishop there, the Baptists, the Brethren, um, Pentecostals, everywhere, because it's going, we want to reach the city. We want to transform the city. So, um, so it's pretty exciting, really, what God's, um, brought out of all of that. So, is that enough? Cool. All right. Um, last year, uh, we've got a, in our movement a big church in Dunedin, and they planted a church in Timaru. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Timaru. It's, it's kind of south of the bridge, quite a long way south, quite a long way south of the bridge. Um, I don't know if you know that there's a, a whole country down there, um, but there is. Uh, and um, anyway, they, um, they had what they call an all-out Sunday, where they kind of just try and go all-out for a Sunday, try and get everyone there, try and just lift everything and whatever. And the guy asked me to come and speak on his all-out Sunday. And so it got me thinking, I thought, okay, if you're going to have an all-out Sunday, I wonder what, what an all-out kind of church would look like. What would an all-out faith look like that was just kind of just out, out, going for it? Because I, I don't know about you, often... We think about um, sin as kind of you're walking this path and sin is like you step off and you do something really bad. And sometimes that's true, but actually the biblical picture more is sin as kind of like this deadening, flattening, boring, grey mediocrity. The picture that we fall short of something glorious that God could have, could have had for us. And so sin is often marked by a boring, apathetic mediocrity, more than by gross departures from righteousness. And so thinking about that, you know, for church, there's just like, there's all of this pressure that would just deaden this thing and make it just a flat, 
and our spirituality and our faith and our relationship with God. And so what does it mean that we have to intentionally break out and go, what would an all-out kind of faith look like that refused to kind of let this deadening thing just sit and just like, you know, we're just going to go all out for this thing. And when I thought about that, you know, I thought about like Jesus, he, because like he lived this all-out faith and it really annoyed the religious people who just had this religious thing going on. And, and if there was a key to Jesus and what made the difference in how he understood faith and church and spirituality, I want to suggest, see if this works, it's this. It was his understanding of the Father heart of God that because he related to God as Father, everything else changed. And that gave him an all-out faith. And I, you, you think, what on earth is he talking about? Oh, I'll show you. But what, so what I want to look at the, today is some aspects of that, and it's from this passage in Luke chapter 15, which is a, it's a chapter where Jesus finds himself in a situation where he's having these party with sinners, and then the religious people criticize him, and in response to that, he tells three stories. He tells a story about a lost uh, sheep, a story about a lost coin. Oh, we've dropped off the bottom. And then there's a story about a lost son, the prodigal son. Um, oh, we might have a problem with formatting. That's all right. And so what I want to talk about is four dimensions of an all-out faith. These dimensions. All-out faith will be marked by intimate worship. It will be marked by joyful celebration. It will be marked by being preoccupied with the loss. And it will be marked by individual honor. And I want to suggest that if you think about vision and what Generations Church will be, these are four marks of a church that's just kind of broken into a free place, broken into life, just living with something of freshness and life and vitality rather than just kind of boring religion. So the first one, intimate worship. If you know the story of the prodigal son, the guy takes off, gets into a bad situation, and then he comes back to the father, and this is what happens when he comes back. So he got up and he went to his father. This, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What a picture of our relationship with God. The father runs to him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. Now, I don't know how you think about your connection with God. But that's an all-out kind of faith that goes, I serve a God who relates to me as a father. When I come see, come to church, is it, do we just go through the motions? Is it even I'm reaching out hoping that God might connect with me? Or do we come knowing that God's running here faster than you are? He wants to run to you. His heart's full for you. He wants to throw his arms around you and kiss you. That, you just go, man, that's a different idea of worship. And I just felt in the practice that there's, a, there's an anointing on you for this thing, the intimate worship, and for the whole team. But this thing, you know, when we do, we're not here just to sing songs. We're, not, we're here because the Father wants to embrace us, because we come for an encounter with God. You know, you see the emotional tone in the other ones with the lost sheep. You know, he goes after the sheep until he finds it. When he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, and he's so happy going, I found my lost sheep. And the woman with the coin, she searches till she finds it, and she goes, I've found my lost coin. And so, you know, when you get to the uh, father, and what's interesting in the final parable, there's the elder brother that shows the opposite of an all-out faith. What does he say? He's so annoyed because he goes, 
I've been slaving for you, for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. You go, wow, what a horrible way to live. That's not about relationship. You see the difference? The father that wants to fill his heart's warm towards you, wants to run, fill, and go, my child's back. Great. Versus the thing that goes, well, I, you know, I've never done anything bad, and I've just been slaving away for God, and just this bit of resentment inside. And that's the kind of thing that church and spirituality can just get into this grind. I've just got to, I've just, yeah, as long as I don't disobey God and I'm slaving and go, no, no, it's about intimate worship. It's about this. Filled with compassion. Ran to him. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. What would, what would worship look like if that was your picture of what you're doing? We're just creating a space for the Father to come and embrace us that we've met with God, that he's just loved you this morning. Intimate worship. The second thing, that in all-out faith, so you can think of these as like some people talk about church as having an upward, inward, and outward dimension. So upward, our relationship with God. and all-out faith, that upward dimension will be marked by intimate worship. What about our inward uh, terms of our relationships with each other? I want to suggest it's marked by joyful celebration. See, the context of this whole passage is that they're grumpy with Jesus, the religious people, because he's having parties. He's eating. This is not, yeah, he's, he's having a feast. He's celebrating with them, and they don't like it. And the whole context is Jesus responding to that and defending it, defending a lifestyle of having parties. And so the whole context actually is about joy. So this is the, the parable of the lost sheep. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. But what does he say? He calls his friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. It's like, come on, we've got to get together and have a party and celebrate and eat. Um, The same with the woman with the lost coin. She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. Like, when we gather, we've got to do this. Uh, And so when you get to this father, the third parable, Bring the fat and calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. So they began to celebrate. I love this. Meanwhile, the older brother was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. What's the sound of your house? What's the sound of this house? Because so often the sound of a church is the sound of duty and pressure and, and it's that slow. And no, the sound needs to be the sound of what? Music and dancing, celebration, our getting together is marked by having a party, by enjoying the sense of being the family of God, because God's our Father. He's pretty excited that his kids are together. He just wants us to party. What's the sound of your faith? What's the sound of this place? I hope it's the sound of celebration, because that faithfully shows the Father heart of God. He goes, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. and sa- We had to celebrate and be glad. Let's make sure the cult and all our faith is, yeah, it's marked by our connection with God as intimate worship, but our connections with each other is marked by joyful celebration because we're the family of God. Uh, let me show you something that might just challenge you, but hopefully there aren't the thing I'm suggesting you is think it's pretty good. So Jesus teaches this parable, you know, about the lost uh, sheep, 
And then at the end of it, he has the saying, I tell you in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Then he tells the parable of the lost coin, and he says, oh, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. So people often say, oh, when, um, you know, when one sinner comes to the Lord, the angels rejoice. And that, that could be true in the sense of um, there's rejoicing amongst the angels. But if you trace it, the flow of it, it's like he's setting up. So if you go back, there's rejoicing in heaven. Then it gets a bit more narrow. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Well, who's in the presence of the angel? Well, the third parable, parable tells you who's, who's calling for the rejoicing. The Father says, let's celebrate. The angels are caught up in a celebration, but it's coming out of the Father heart of God. No? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. The Father celebrates, and so the angels celebrate, and so all heaven celebrates. But it comes out of a revelation of the Father heart of God. And that's why Jesus was celebrating, because he says, I only do what the Father does. I'm only copying the Father. The Father's celebrating, that's why I'm celebrating. And, the, and what does the older brother say? You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate. You go, I, my faith, my connection with you was about obeying your orders. My living it outward, there was never celebration. You go, that's not an all-out faith. If an all-out faith is marked by intimate worship, joyful celebration. Oh, let, let me just say one more point about that. Um, I was just flicking through the TV the other night, and I saw an interview that guy, Canon J. John, who's just been over here with some conferences. He was interviewing the Archbishop of York, who's a black African archbishop in England. And the guy was talking about his conversion, and the thing that struck him, how he responded, he said, I went to this uh, meeting, and this man up the front told me, that if I gave my life to Jesus, heaven would party. And he said, that just blew my mind. Heaven would party because I gave my life to him. And it just blew, and it blew, and he gave us, and he did give his heart to the Lord. Out of that, like, how amazing is that? How much does that show the heart of God of how important you are? Which leads to the third one, this thing, being preoccupied with the lost. If intimate worship is our upward relationship with God, and joyful celebration is our inward relationship with each other, then I want to suggest that being preoccupied with the lost is the focus of thinking outwards into the world. And that comes, that language of the lost comes from this chapter. So that, again, the Pharisees and the teachers are muttering, they're complaining because of Jesus' uh, relationship and focus with uh, people that they don't think are very nice. And so the three parables are about this. Suppose if you... One of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. So it's not about, who knows, maybe the sheep was perfectly happy, but from the shepherd's point of view, they were lost to him. Lost is, a, lost is not about how life is going. Lost is about the heart of the person that they belong to. See, the lost coin, again, she loses one. She wants to find it. And so then with the father, what's his attitude? The son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Um, again, when the son first went off, he had a wonderful time. But he was lost to the father. Then he had a terrible time. 
He was lost to the Father. It's interesting, I, because of my role in a Bible school, I end up reading lots of academic commentaries, and they're often not very inspiring. But this is, a, this is one that really stunned me when I read this, very academic writing. The section, this is from Gospel of Luke, 15, 1 to 32, I love this, defends and commends preoccupation with the lost and overflowing joy at their restoration. We all respond this way with what is our own, and this attitude corresponds to the concerns of a father's heart for his own children, each of whom is singularly precious in his sight. I love that thing, defends and commends preoccupation with the lost. Might have mentioned this before, we've got uh, three kids, and our middle one, a girl, when she was about 12, she just suddenly went kind of, just went anti-everything. And, uh, and so we had some difficult years with her. The low point was about two weeks before her 15th birthday, she ran away from home. And um, we reconnected and stuff. But she never moved home again until she was 18 and pregnant. And she, now she lives with us. With her. We've got a two-year-old granddaughter. But 15 years old, run away from home. I've got two children tucked up in bed. Who am, as a father, who am I preoccupied with? I'm terrified that I've got a 15-year-old daughter and I don't even know where she is. She might be having a great time, but she's lost to me. She might be living life, she might be really happy, but she's lost to me. She might be in danger, but she's lost to me. See, the, the, the concept of lostness is actually about the father's heart. It's not about how life is going. I'm sure a lot of people out there are really happy this morning. And the father says, they're lost, they're my kids, and they're lost to me. So if, once you get the sense of the Father, oh, there's an anointing of God on that. Once you get the Father heart of God, you're preoccupied. Not lost as in, whoa, terrible things. Lost as in the Father's heart is aching for a relationship with them. It's interesting. So traditionally you think, as I said, in terms of upward Inward and outward dimensions, intimate worship, joyful celebration, being preoccupied with the lost. If you got that, if you, if you so got the Father heart of God, that would just bring an all-out faith that would just break out in life and vitality. Because when you gather together, it would be about, we're going to connect with God. He's just going to love all over us. And when we gather together with one another, we're just going to have a party and we're going to celebrate. We're going to enjoy each other's company. And when we think about our community, we just our heart aches that the Father's heart is aching for those who don't know him. Do you know what? It's interesting. When I went to speak at this church in Timaru, I thought, I thought there's another point that God wants me to give. And it's like, you'd think, I don't know, you'd think the devil might not be very happy about some of those. But I thought... He doesn't really care about me preaching that. There's a fourth point that there's real spiritual resistance to, and it's this, which is if upward, inward, and outward. There's kind of an onward thing of our journey together. And let me suggest this to you. The, the, of another dimension of all-out faith is of individual honor. Just let me show you what I mean by that, this passage. Most of us will have no grid to even hear this. But I'll let you try and I'll try and we'll try and get there, okay? When the son comes back, the father's response is this bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. What kind of father's heart is that? 
that just goes, I just want you to have the, I just, what, what is that in the Father's heart? That just don't, doesn't go, oh, give him a hose down and he'll be right. It says, bring the best robe and put on, put a ring on his finger, put sandal on him, the special uh, calf that we've been fattening out for a big celebration. We're going to use that today. But this, what is that about in the Father's heart? And what's the opposite of a religious spirit that doesn't get this? And as Kiwis, I reckon that there's a massive spiritual resistance to us getting this, that salvation is not just about you're the scum of the earth, but don't worry, God will kind of ignore that and get, get you into heaven. The Father's heart is when you, we come to him, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, because my son's back, my daughter's back. He saves us back, not onto a position of servitude, but to a position of honoured sons and daughters. And New Zealand culture hates that idea and doesn't get it. And so, again, oh, it drops off the bottom, but if you look at the thing, uh, the account of the son, you know, he... he ends up in a terrible place. So he's in need. He hires himself out to Gentiles, which is a really bad thing in that culture. It's demeaning. And then the role that he gets is to feed the pigs, which is really even more demeaning. And then their whole thing of eating and who you eat with is really important to them. And he just wants to eat what the pigs will give. Like that's about as bad as you can get. Except there's one step lower, which we can't show you on the screen, is actually no one will even offer him the stuff of the pigs. It's like, you don't get lower than that. Working for a Gentile who puts you to work with the pigs, you want to eat the pig slop, but no one's even offering it. I mean, you think you're having a bad run. That's kind of as bad as it gets for a Jew. But when the father, and so his thought is, what about just make my, the status of my father's hired servants? So he prepares this little speech, as you do when you've done something with your mum and dad, you know, and you rehearse it to get it right. So he's got a three-line speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the job. You tell me what to do and I'll do it as long as I can just get by. That's all I'm after. That's the level of my expectation. That's the most that I think... I could hope for. Remember three lines. What happens when he sees the Father? The Father lets him say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the Father cuts him off before the third line. Do you remember what that was? Make me like one of your hired servants. I reckon the Father lets him say the first two lines because they are the truth about where he's at. The Father doesn't let him say the third line because that would have been an untruth about the Father. Yeah, I'm a, I'm blowing it. Yeah, I'm not worthy. But you, you, you bring me back and you put me back in a place of honour. And you lift me up and you're delighted. And for him to have been a hired servant would have been a bad reflection on the father, not a reflection of what the son deserved. You know, if you try and understand what was going on, people try and find places back in Scripture to make sense of this. What was happening with that? And some parallels. So, you know, Israel, the guy, loved Joseph more than his other sons, and he made him an ornate robe. So this thing of putting a robe on as an expression of love and devotion. Um, when the Pharaoh uh, approached Joseph, he 
took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That's the idea. He used to seal things with the signet ring on you know, wax. So this was like giving the credit card. It's like authority. Um, and so people wonder about that. Actually, commentators are unsure in Luke 15 whether it is a signet ring or not. In some ways, I like the idea that it's not. Because then it's just so pointlessly extravagant. Isn't it? It's like, put the coin, you know, find him a big piece of jewelry and stick it on his finger. It's like, that just shows the heart of the father. Like, he doesn't even need it. Why would you do that? Because it's the heart of the father. Because it's about honor. It's about love. It's about he's proud of you, that he wants to love on you. Um, Mark 1, the Jesus' baptism. You are my son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. Probably the best passage, though, is this one in Esther chapter 6, where this guy, Haman, is tricking the king and has done some naughty things, and the king asks him about how you honor someone, and Haman thinks he's talking about him. But notice the language. The king asks, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, so who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes and let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the fundamental picture in Luke 15, bring the best robe, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, is God, the father just goes, I just honor him. I bring him to a place of honor. In fact, I love this. I haven't highlighted it, but the same, I don't know, did you notice four times the same phrase? The man the king delights to honor. 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 Do you get the heart? The person, the son or the daughter that the father delights to honor. The father isn't honored by you being one of his hired servants. The father is honored by him showing his heart and honoring you, and he delights to honor. What does honor mean? Showing respect is for worth, merit, or rank. Such respect manifested high public esteem. In um, 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about that we live in this world, we wage war, and that we, our war is against strongholds as ways of thinking. Have a look at this. Some pictures of New Zealand culture. Our heroes are the kind of the understated, just plod and faithful, you know, oh, he's a beekeeper, but he just happened to climb the tallest mountain in the world, you know. We knocked the so-and-so off, da-da-da-da. You know, what other country has a national color of black? You know, and when countries choose an animal to be their symbol, they choose a lion or they choose an eagle or an antelope. We choose this nocturnal, semi-blind, flightless bird that lives in holes in the ground and eats leaf litter. You go, what is that about? <laughs> so the, every culture, there's a, there's a redemptive gift. There's something godly on this just faithful, understated, unassuming, just get on with the task. But there's a dark side to it. That the whole tall poppy syndrome, the thing, the way that when I say that phrase from Luke 15, it just flies and it go, it doesn't even connect. We don't even get it. Let me say that. that may, I, I was just thinking, anyone seen these ads? 
I read a blog last night. Most people just find them really annoying, right? But the ASB has actually tapped into them. They reckon there's a thing in Kiwi culture. I just saw a sign when I was driving here, um, you know, no biggie. Yes, biggie. We really struggle with that. Then it's part of this thing to break out of it and go, yeah, God's favor is here. And there's a spirit that would just intimidate us and would intimidate Generations Church and say, who do you think you are? And there's nothing. Da, da, da. And you need to break out and go, we are highly favored by God. God is with us. God honors us. God's presence is with us. We need to resist that stronghold that would just, that would just keep pushing us down in our Kiwi culture, and we need to break out of it. Bill, if, just to give you a bit of, if you struggle with this, I like Bill Johnson says this, royalty is my identity, servanthood is my assignment. So I guess the traditional spirituality and Kiwis are quite good at, oh, let's just knuckle down and serve. Yeah, yeah, and maybe some of the extremes of, yeah, yeah, I'm a child of God. But when you put them together, you have a balanced spirituality. And us Kiwis struggle with this one. And Jesus had it. He showed the two. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he, so what did he do? Because he knew that. He knew his identity. So he got up, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water in a basin and began washing the disciples' feet. We often hope that if we serve, we'll find identity. Oh, isn't he a nice person? They're so faithful. Da, da, da. No, what God wants to do is he wants you to know your identity as an honored child of God, and then you serve. This is, I'm just going to close with this. Back to this thing. Can you, can you hear, can you even acknowledge how hard it is to hear this? You can hear that other stuff, you know, intimate worship. The Father wants to embrace us. You can hear the um, joyful celebration. You can hear the the preoccupation with the loss. We even find it hard to read that verse and hear how it relates to some of us. Do you want to sum that up in one word? It's grace. It's grace. Grace is about the fact. See, even that, we often use the thing, oh, you're saved by grace. What does that mean? Oh, that means you don't really deserve it. No, no, saved by grace means I'm saved because the Father has poured out on me. I'm saved because he's just downloaded on me favor, love, salvation, blessing, grace. Why don't you stand? I'm just going to pray. God wants to an all-out faith. God wants Generations Church to be an all-out church. Intimate worship when you gather. Joyful celebration. Preoccupied with the lost. But I reckon the key is God has to shift something in our minds. And there's an intimidation that, that just says, mocks and says, who do you think you are? Something in us needs to rise up against that. Go, I'm a child of the Most High God. That's who I am that we're a highly favored church, that God's favor is upon us, that I'm saved by grace. That just means the Father's heart delights to pour every, Paul says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places into your life. You know, some of us are str struggle with this. 
You know, for, for me, I mean, I grew, my dad was in and out of jail when I was a kid. We grew up poor, never enough money, state housing area, just just shame. And 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 to actually shift something to go, no, that's a lie about the, I've picked up a lie about the fatherhood of God. God is a father. He has a smile on his face. He provides. He protects. He blesses. Why don't you say, maybe open up your hands, open up your hearts. Father, I pray, those of us who have believed a lie about you, give us a revelation of the Father heart of God. Lord, those of us who have grown up under this New Zealand culture, God, we, we take everything that's good in there about just being understated and working and not big-headed. But God, we want to break out of the stronghold that would just mock anything that's successful and full of dynamism and life and just go, oh, tall poppy, and who do they think they are? And say something rise up in our spirits and go, I'm a child of the Most High God. God, set us free this morning. God, break these strongholds individually and over this church and liberate to be an all-out church, living an all-out faith. That's a testimony in this part of our nation to the glorious Father heart of God. Amen. I'll just hand back to Pastor.